0: welcome. This is Perspective for Parents. My name is Nick Thompson, and this is a podcast for parents of adolescents. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. The word anxiety is overused and often unhelpful. We can use a better word. Let me check out the definition here. Anxiety is defined by the Oxford Dictionary as a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. Listen to that. Within this definition includes several emotions that we can all relate to. Have you ever been worried? Have you ever been nervous, stressed, uneasy, uncertain? I believe anxiety has replaced like dozens of words that used to better describe our emotional state. We're getting rid of these better, more descriptive words. Like agitated, annoyed, concerned, hesitant, insecure, intimidated, nauseous, overwhelmed, tense, timid, worried, uneasy upset all of these have been replaced by one word that word being anxiety so you may ask why why would it be better to use a different word first off each of those emotional states that i just listed they're different and therefore they require different responses so for example if i'm nauseous before i give a presentation Maybe hydrating and eating something is what I need to do. Maybe that'll do the trick. If I'm feeling insecure before, I don't know, going into a job interview, I may need to remind myself how I would be an asset to that company. If I'm feeling overwhelmed by moving, I should probably get on the phone, reach out to a few friends, and ask for a little help. For this daunting, arduous task, reach out to a buddy who's got a truck and bends from the knees. You know, you're not supposed to bend from the knees. No, you are. You're supposed to lift from the knees. I think that's how that one goes. So all those, all those different situations are different and therefore require different responses. The one I talked about with the, with the presentation, that requires taking care of a physical need hydrating and food the next one about the the interview that's about positive self talk the last one was about utilizing social connections to help complete the task those things are all different by the way research shows that the more extensive the more varied the more nuanced our emotional vocabulary is the better we actually are at regulating our emotions An extensive emotional vocabulary is a huge piece of emotional intelligence. Additionally, most people associate the word anxiety with a disorder. Many people believe that because they have this experience of of anxiety, that they probably most likely have generalized anxiety disorder or social anxiety disorder. So, what do you do? Oh man, I maybe have a disorder. I know what to do. I'm going to check in with you know who? Dr. Google. What's up, Dr. Google? And when you check in with Dr. Google about if you have an anxiety disorder, Dr. Google will come at you strong with, oh yeah, yep, you got both and this other thing. And uh, you have cancer as well. Most likely, that's usually what Google does. Thankfully, This thing known as the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Guess what? Go through it. It does not have anything named a nauseous disorder, an insecure disorder, an overwhelmed disorder. We all have anxiety. Anxiety is why we are here. We are all the descendants of super-anxious ancestors who lived in a time where their anxiety allowed them to survive and reproduce. It was an adaptive quality. Okay, and lastly, anxiety has become a reason why avoidance is accepted and encouraged. We talk all the time about wanting our kids to have grit and to develop meaningful relationships with their peers. And yet we're constantly removing the personal and social discomfort of their lives when they report feeling anxious. We believe we're doing them a favor. We are not. We are not doing them a favor. It is a considerable disservice to our youth when we approve and aid in the removal of discomfort. In the face of anxiety. Remember. Most discomfort is not dangerous. It used to be. It used to kill you. Now 99.9% of discomfort. Isn't dangerous. It's just uncomfortable. In fact we know. That discomfort is where the growth. Is most likely to occur. We say things like growth mindset. We need to have a. Uh, perspective of growth. Middle school, high school, college, our kids need to be growing. But yet, when the discomfort shows up, we're so quick to remove it. We wonder why our young people are anxious. We wonder why so many of them are fragile. We wonder why they're having such difficulty adapting to the responsibilities and duties of adulthood i wonder if it has anything to do with us running in there and removing the discomfort if we can look at that discomfort as a growth opportunity everything changes a g o go a growth opportunity that's what that discomfort is we need to change our lens we can do better We can use a word that gives us better insight into what we're actually feeling and therefore what we can do about it. We can use a word that doesn't make us immediately feel like we have a disorder and run to Dr. Google. We can use a word that doesn't encourage us and the people we love to miss out on growth opportunities. We can use a better word. All right. You may be asking what that sound means. Well, there are times when I record these topics that I revisit them. Because just so you know, I, I don't script this. I just, uh, I just speak from the heart. And uh, there's sometimes that I listen to uh, these topics afterwards and I feel like I need to acknowledge something, clarify something, provide an example for something. So in that last one I listened to, I want to be very clear That I do believe anxiety disorders are real and people can have anxiety disorders that are incredibly debilitating to to their lives. So, yes, people can have generalized anxiety disorder and panic disorder and and social anxiety disorder. So, I wanted to be clear about that. Now, do I believe that uh, many anxiety disorders are overdiagnosed? Absolutely, I do. But many people have. A disorder, and so I wanted to be very clear about that. If it came off that I wasn't thinking that anxiety disorders are real, so I wanted to get that in, and I also wanted to speak, you know, to to a parent who has an anxiety disorder or a parent Mm -hmm. of a child who has an anxiety disorder. Getting a diagnosis of an anxiety disorder can be a good thing if it provides understanding for the family and. A better understanding for the youth of what's going on, what anxiety is, how it shows up in their body, and what they can do to manage it. So, if the diagnosis is used to sort of create a better game plan for how to move forward and how to live a more full, well life, then great. Yeah. That's a great thing that that the diagnosis is there. Or if that's what you're looking for, Go see, you know, go see a psychiatrist, go see a doctor, see if this is an anxiety disorder, someone that you trust in the medical field. Oftentimes I see people looking at a diagnosis with an unhelpful way. Many youth, when they get a diagnosis of anxiety, will feel like something's wrong with them, that they're broken, that they can't succeed, that they can't be successful socially, academically. Otherwise, sometimes I see parents really struggling to connect with their child after a diagnosis because they're beginning to view their child through this lens known as a disorder. And as Irv Yalom says, diagnoses can be an issue, and I I might butcher this a bit, but the theme of his message is When we know that somebody has a a disorder, we will selectively attend to the aspects, the behaviors, the characteristics of the person that match up with the diagnosis, with the disorder. And in turn, inattend to the aspects, the characteristics, the behaviors of the person that don't match up with the diagnosis. So if your child does have a diagnosis or is looking to get one, as a parent, please don't allow it to limit your view of your child, limit the vision, limit how you, how you look at your child. They are so much more, so much more than a disorder. a while back i was thinking about how when you're with a young person who's who's in a state of intense emotion when they're overwhelmed they're freaked out they're angry embarrassed whatever it is when it's turned up it feels like you're sort of in a crisis negotiation it's kind of what it feels like you're doing a negotiation crisis mode so when i had this thought i went online and looked up the fbi's crisis negotiation protocol it was fascinating it's all right there it's called the behavioral change stairway model this is what the fbi uses and i was like there it is it's everything we need to be doing with our youth so because this isn't a visual medium i'll try to explain it to you the fbi's crisis negotiation Is this. It starts. And the foundation of the whole process. Is active listening. Yep. Active listening. This is what the FBI says. Not some. You know. Boulder. Granola. Hippy dippy. Psycho babble. For me. This is the FBI. Believe them. When our kids are in a state of distress. High levels of dysregulation. We need. To start and continue with active listening. And only when we listen actively can we build empathy. Empathy is like is buzzword. Everybody's saying empathy. Um, I hear people say things like, I'm just an empathic person. Well, that doesn't make sense, by the way. That, what do you mean? You have to listen to someone before you can build empathy. You can't just jump in with, with empathy. I'm here. I have empathy. That's not how it works. You got to listen. Okay, so active listening, and if I listen actively, I can develop empathy. Step two of this stairway model. And once I have empathy, and only when I have empathy for this person, can I get to rapport. We must get to rapport. The FBI must get to rapport with a person in a state of crisis. And when, we're, when our kids are in a state of crisis, emotional dysregulation, We have to get to rapport before we can get to any form of influence. The FBI knows this. Many parents do not. Where do parents like to jump in on this stairway? Well, they like to jump in right at influence. This is what needs to happen. This is what you need to do. Listen to me. I've lived longer. I'm successful. This is what you do. Here's the answer. I know the answer to this one. Can't wait to share it with you. Nope, not when they're in a state of emotional dysregulation because they're in a different part of their brain. They're not in a part of their brain where they're really taking in your pearls of wisdom, your advice, your recommendations, your direction. So the FBI knows this, and I love sharing this with parents. If you want to get to any form of behavioral influence, you have to listen actively so that you can build empathy. The empathy will allow you to get to rapport with your child. And only at rapport do you get to behavioral influence. And here's a reminder. Just because you got to uh, rapport with your kid like two weeks ago when that thing happened, it doesn't mean that you just get to jump in at influence the next time something happens when there's a social crisis, trauma, whatever in their life. We got to do it every time. We got to listen actively. Oh, that's something people say. Uh, active listening, but many people don't know what it is. I created a, a acronym for it: Opera. So the O is open-ended questions. What's an open-ended question? Well, it's it's uh, you can't answer yes or no. It's not a, a, a finite answer possibility. So open-ended questions usually start with what and how. Those are good open-ended questions. Why is an open-ended question? But we often want to avoid why. Why avoid why? Because, just listen to it. Why? There's judgment built into it. It doesn't really uh, uh, send the message of, I'm here to listen, I care. Why did you do that? Why were you there? Why did you go with him? Why didn't you turn in your assignment? So good open-ended questions start with how or what. P. The P in opera stands for presence. Be mindful, be aware of your presence. How's my tone? How's my cadence of my speech? How's my body language? Am I making direct eye contact? Sometimes that can be unhelpful if if a young person is really in a state of, of crisis. I want to come alongside of them, have a calm tone, open body language. You know, we don't want to hover above them. Maybe we don't want to get right in front of them, stare them in the eye. That can be you know, taken as, uh, as aggressive to a lot of young people. So we want to really focus on our presence because when they're in that more primal uh, wiring in their brain, they're really focused on the presence of other people, the, the, the loudness of their voice, the tone, the cadence. Their body positioning. So, really try to communicate with your body, with your voice, calmness, caring, considerate. Okay. The E in opera, emotional labeling. That looks like when somebody's telling you something, you say, Oh, wow, it sounds like you're really, really upset. Oh, wow, it sounds like you're really frustrated. Sounds like that, you know, yesterday you were really sad. Try to name the emotion. Uh, Daniel Siegel says, name it to tame it. If we can name our emotions, oftentimes that, that immediately turns down the activated intensity of the emotion. Just naming it activates our parasympathetic nervous system, which calms us down. So name it to tame it. Emotional labeling. Cool thing about emotional labeling is you can be wrong. Like it's, sometimes it's even better when you're off. You can be like, oh, it sounds like you were really, um, overwhelmed. No, I wasn't overwhelmed. I was pissed off. Like, oh, that's great. So think about what they had to do there. They had to take in your suggestion of an emotional thing, uh, 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 an emotional state, uh, do some reflection. Say, oh, that's actually not right. It wasn't that. It was this. So that's fantastic, even when when you uh, are off in your emotional labeling. The R in opera is reflection. It's just reflecting back what you heard in your own words. You can start with things like, uh, so I'm hearing... These are good transitions into reflecting back. It shows the other person that you're listening and allows them to have a more objective take on what's going on. And they can also kind of lead you and and correct. All of these things, all these processes are done in the prefrontal cortex. And that's where we want them. That's where we want to move them up to. They're in this emotional system further back in their brain. And we want to move them up to their prefrontal cortex, which is more rational and more logical. So all of these exercises, pull them up uh, uh, to their prefrontal cortex. The A in operas for affirmations. This is things like, wow, can't believe that happened. Ooh, really? Affirming. Wow, that had to be really difficult. My goodness, I can't believe that happened. Those are affirmations. So if you do those five things, open-ended questions, focus on your presence, uh, label things emotionally, so emotional, emotional labeling, the E, R, reflection, reflecting back what you're hearing from them in your own words, and A, using affirmations, you will have a great conversation with your kid. I promise you. You could have a successful private practice if you just did those five things. That's what active listening is. So if you use opera, you can move up that stairway into empathy and into rapport and then maybe, just maybe, into behavioral influence, which is where most parents want to be. Thank you for listening. If you found this podcast useful, please subscribe, rate, review, and share with a friend. If you would like to find more information about this podcast or my upcoming presentations, please check out my website, perspectiveforparents.com. Spelled out, that's perspective, the number for parents.com. Thanks again.